You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. As Sam said, my name is Marty. I recently joined the staff, and it's good to be here with you this morning. We're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. And remember, these commandments were given for our freedom and to protect us. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to live in a place where you were free to do whatever you wanted? Maybe if you're 10, you really wonder that. But this was illustrated to me one night as I was watching TV. My husband, Tony, and I, we were on vacation. There was only one TV station, so we turned it on, and it was Purge election night. Now, I don't know if you know about The Purge, but it's a three-part series, and it's in a dystopian world in the U.S. where one night a year, everyone is free to do whatever they want. No, No crimes, there's no illegal things, and there's no emergency services. And so one night a year in The Purge, People terrorize their neighbors. They loot and they steal and they murder. The Purge imagines a world where, where hatred and anger and murder are free to run loose. And it was awful. And I was gripped by it. And even when it was over, I just kept thinking about it. And watching this movie, and I'm, I'm not recommending it, <laughs> uh, brought home to me how grateful I am to live in a place where the rule of law exists. So let's turn back to the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to be looking at Commandment 6, do not murder. The commandments take a slight shift at this point, and they move to a focus on protecting our neighbor, our neighbor's health and relationships and stuff. And as our neighbors follow this law, our stuff and health and relationships will also be protected. And so we're going to read the final five together, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. So if you can stand with me out of respect for God's word. So Exodus 20, 13 to 17. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for your word. We trust this morning that you will speak to us, that you will help us to understand more about who you are and how you want us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So as some of you know, the, Mo- the Old Testament is primarily, primarily written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew in verse 13 is simply two words, no murder. And the word for murder is rasa. And it's a very specific word, much more specific than the English word kill. And so you may have learned the Ten Commandments with the six being thou shalt not kill. But if you read any new translation, it will be thou shalt not murder or do not murder. And in the Old Testament, um, rasa was focused on intentional murder or, or, or manslaughter, so mistakenly murdering someone. And the consequence for intentional murder was death. This word focuses on violence from one person against another, and it doesn't include things like capital punishment or killing in war. 
Now remember these 10 commandments that were given to bring freedom to the Israelites, to enhance and protect life. So how does this commandment, do not murder, bring freedom? I'm married to a South African, and it's a beautiful country, but it's not a country where the basic commandment, do not murder, is respected. And many in South Africa have experienced the terror of home invasion. And most people have a friend or family member who's been married, who's been murdered. And in, in homes in South Africa, there are electric fences. There's bats and stun guns at the ready. And some houses even have burglar bars that lower down outside your bedrooms. You lock them at night. So if someone breaks in, they can, kill you, uh, they can steal your stuff, but not kill you. And... When our South African family comes to visit, they experience a new kind of freedom. First, they experience the freedom to think about other things besides life and safety. So my sister-in-law works in media, and when she first came, she would read our newspapers, pour over them, and be amazed at some of the things that were in our papers. So for instance, there was a spread in the Vancouver Sun about recycling. She couldn't believe it because their newspapers have, of course, death and uh, corruption and all kinds of things on the front page. And one year, she clipped out the crime section from our local newspaper. The only crime that week was someone's bike had been found on someone else's lawn and the police were looking for the owner. She, <laughs> so she took it home to show her friends. And um, they also, when they come, find out they have freedom to roam. My 19-year-old my niece, Danielle, came for a visit. She'd never been outside of South Africa before. And we were living in a very safe community, Tawasin, where people don't even really lock their doors. And she was amazed by this. And she would go out every night for a walk in the dark. And she just loved it, being by herself. And she felt so free. She'd never been able to do this in her whole life. Following this word, you must not murder, gives freedom, freedom for life. And remember, it first came to the Israelites. They'd been slaves in Egypt, and they knew what it looked like to live in a culture of murder and death. Their lives had very little value. They really were only valuable for the labor they could provide. And even their baby boys had been ordered to be killed at birth uh, in case they became a threat to Pharaoh. And so this word, do not murder, would reshape the way that they related to one another after such a traumatizing period of time. This morning, I'm going to focus on three things. So the first is, why does God prohibit murder? The second is, what is a full biblical dep definition of no murder? And then the third is, how might we as followers of Jesus engage in some current ethical issues like capital punishment or abortion? So first, why is murder so bad? In Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says this. He says, there is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. All life belongs to God, as God is the author of life. And we cannot act as if we are God by taking on the prerogative of, of, give, of killing. And so God is the sovereign ruler over life and death. And murder violates the first commandment. You must have no other gods before me. You and I are not God. Secondly, we must not murder because humanity is made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, 28, 29, 
God creates humanity, male and female, in the image of God. And he says, it is very good. When I was in Thailand in the mid-80s, I was on a missions trip. We were given a lot of instructions by our Thai friends of things we should not do, not Thai way. And one of those things was we should never step on a Thai coin. And why? Because putting your foot on the coin was the image of the head of the Thai king. And putting your foot on the image of the head of the king is a terrible disrespect to the king. And it must not be done. And foreigners who had done this had, had even been attacked. And likewise in Judeo-Christian thought, murdering a human is murdering someone who is made in the image and likeness of God. And in the image and likeness of the king of all creation. And it's a terrible disrespect to the creator. This, the murderer defies God by attacking God's image. And in Genesis 9-6, it says, if anyone takes a human life, that's per that person's life will also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. The third reason we must not murder is because murder is the ultimate betrayal of love for our neighbor. It's a violation of justice and our neighbor's right to life. And finally, we must not murder because murder degrades and dehumanizes the murderer. And so murder uh, represents a form of slavery to your passions, not being able to control yourself. And it veils the image of God in the murderer. And instead of the murderer imaging God, the murderer images the evil one. In Genesis 8:44, Jesus accuses his enemies who are trying to kill him of being like their father, Satan, the one who was the murderer from the beginning. So as we've been journeying through these Ten Commandments, you've probably recognized that following the first five commandments is very difficult. And in contrast, do not murder seems relatively easy for us to keep. We live in a safe country. We're not on the edge of life and death as these ancients were or as many people are today. And we can easily avoid killing someone. And so today you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, this is a commandment I can really keep. But I think we all have a deep-seated instinct uh, towards vengeance, an eye for an eye, a life for a life. And it makes sense in our hearts. You hurt me, and so I'm going to hurt you. And we can spend years nursing a grudge. We can, murder comes out of this kind of seething resentment that has lasted for years. Or it can happen in an instant, such as, as an overwhelmed parent with a crying infant. Parker Palmer suggests that violence is what happens when we don't know what to do with our suffering. And although most of us will be able to resist murdering someone, as you read the whole of scriptures, you'll find out that this command, do not murder, is the minimum call on the respecting the image of God in another person. The minimum call. So let's move on to this second point and look at a fuller de definition of what it means to not murder. So Moses in chapter 19 in Leviticus all, already begins to, to flesh this out. And in verse 17 he writes, Do not nurse hatred in your hearts for any of your relatives. Instead, he writes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jewish rabbis talk about this commandment, do not murder, and they expand it to include protecting and providing for others. 
And Jesus himself taught on this commandment. So who better to help us understand it than Jesus? So in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. And then Jesus goes on to speak about the importance of forgiveness. So Jesus intensifies the command, do not murder. He deepens it and he broadens it. He focuses not just on the evil act, but on the evil attitudes that underlie it. And other New Testament writers pick up on what Jesus is saying here. And his disciple John in 1 John 3.13 writes, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And in 1 John 4.20, it is impossible to hate your brother and to love God. Martin Luther, the 15th century theologian, wrote this on this commandment. He says, we must not kill either by hand, by heart, by word, by signs or gestures. And so this is a reminder for all of us who get heated up in Metro Vancouver traffic. No gestures. Um, Okay, so now that you have this fuller meaning of do not murder, think back. How many of you have never broken this commandment? I'm looking for a hand. (laughs) Oh, there's someone over there. Amazing. So, (laughs) So, yes, we have all broken this commandment. And in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus introduces a new way for his people to live. In Matthew 5, 9, he teaches people this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. There's a call on followers of Jesus to do more than not murder, but to heal, to preserve, and to restore life. In Exodus 21, the next chapter after the Ten Commandments, Moses introduces another law. It's the law of reciprocal justice. And this is a guide for the kind of retaliation allowed by the people of God. So you can only take one eye for one eye, one tooth for one tooth, one life for one life. But in Matthew 5, 38 to 39, Jesus reverses the law of retaliation. And he says that for those who follow him, there is no more payback. And then he goes on in verse 43 and 45 to expand Moses' requirement for loving your neighbor. And he says this. He said, you've heard the law say... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. The opposite of murder is love and forgiveness. And Jesus calls his followers to forgive in the same way he does. And Jesus models this. He models this ultimate forgiveness for enemies when he goes to the cross And he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we are not to murder because instead, as we experience Jesus' love and forgiveness, we are meant to pass it on and represent the life and character of Jesus to those around us. We are not just meant to ask the question, is this someone, is Sam made in the image of God and so I shouldn't murder him? But instead, we're to ask the question, as For me, as someone made in the image of God, how should I treat Sam? That is the question. 
So loving your enemy and forgiving those who've hurt you is very difficult. It is very difficult, especially when the person who hurt you is not sorry for what they've done. So I want to tell you a story. It's a story I recently heard. It's about a man named Johanno Katanako. He's a Palestinian theologian and pastor, and he'll be teaching at Regent College later this summer. But Johanna had grown up in the midst of deep-seated con- conflict between Jewish Israelis and his people, the Palestinians. And in university, he was an active atheist. Then there was a miraculous event, and he came to become a follower of Jesus. And he began to read the Bible. He started it in the New Testament. And he pretty quickly got to Matthew 5, this verse on loving your enemies. And when he read this, he clearly knew that this was addressing his politics and would apply to his attitude towards Israelis, and particularly to Israeli soldiers. And he responded with great anguish, and he prayed, Jesus, you are asking me to become a traitor. One day he went into a Christian coffee shop, and he found a flyer entitled Real Love, and it was written in both Hebrew and English. And it was, had a quotation on it from Isaiah 53. And this is a portion of scripture widely believed by Christians to predict Jesus' sacrificial death. And it talks about his gentle spirit and his willingness to offer himself for his people. And Johanna thought to himself, he thought, I can't love my enemies, but what I will do is I'll take this flyer and I'll put it with my ID card. And every time I'm stopped by Israeli soldiers, they'll open it and they'll see this and they will ask me about it. And, and I will not lie to them. I will not tell them I love them. But I will at least say, this is how my God wants me to treat you. And so he did that. He put it in his ID card. And every time he got stopped, they would open it. They'd ask him about the flyer. And he'd talk to them about Jesus. And he said, after a period of time, his heart began to change. And he actually began to pray, God, let them stop me so I can talk to them about Jesus. <laughs> but one night, he had been... He was very tired. He'd been working all day at his church, and he just wanted to get home. He was walking home, and he saw three Israeli soldiers, and they called him over. And he was quite flustered, and he said he started to unzip his jacket, and they thought he was going for a gun. So they pulled out their machine guns, and they pointed them at his head. And all of a sudden, he put his hands on his heart, and he said, I love you. And they were shocked, and he was shocked. Um, And they lowered their weapons, and he started talking to them about Jesus. And at the end of the conversation, they said to him, we wish all Palestinians were like you. And he said, no, I wish all Israelis were like me. Um, (laughs) But reflecting on his experience, Johanna has come to believe that love is not just a feeling, but it's a decision to honor our commitment to Jesus, to love our enemies. And when we do this, our love muscles will go, grow stronger, even in the midst of hatred. So how do we cultivate love and graciousness and forgiveness to others? In the passage we read in Matthew on Jesus' interpretation of the do not murder command, Jesus gives us some important wisdom. First, he says we need to deal with our anger. We, we need to be, and we also need to be careful about what we say to, about someone else. So rehearsing our anger, reviewing the events that hurt us, making judgments on the one who offended us has been proven to fuel our anger. It makes us matter. And have you ever noticed that when you do this, you're not free? You're stuck in the connection with the one who hurt you. And they have ongoing power in your life. 
I think we also need to pay attention to the way we talk about other people. And research on anger has actually shown that venting makes us angrier. So instead, we are to forgive our enemies. We're to pray for our enemies. What would it be like if when someone cut you off in traffic, you prayed for them? Or when a colleague at work insults you, you follow up by saying something positive about them. This is how we strengthen our love muscles. And this is very difficult to do. But it's possible to do as we walk with Jesus, as Johanna demonstrated in much more difficult circumstances. So now, now that we've looked at why murder is bad and the fuller meaning of do not murder, I'd like to look at three specific ethical issues. The first is capital punishment. Is this something that we as followers of Jesus should support? Now, capital punishment, in an ideal sense, is carried out by the government in a care, careful and fair manner. It's meant for those who commit this ultimate crime to be carried, and it's to be carried out in a way that's not cruel or brutal. But can any legal system truly be fair? And based on current track records, I don't think so. Too many innocent people are convicted of murder. Think of David Milgard, who just passed away. And marginalized people, indigenous people, people of color, they're very vulnerable to this kind of injustice. And, and not only this, but the call for capital punishment relies on the law of retaliation, a life for life. And remember in, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there is no more eye for eye or life for life. And instead, he invites us to turn the other cheek, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And so as followers of Jesus, I believe we are not just called to not support capital punishment, but we're called to mitigate circumstances which might lead someone to murder someone else. And so to be fully for life, we need to ask ourselves, how can we reduce the conditions which lead people to murder? How might we help people deal with trauma and suffering? How might we help marriages where there's violence? How might we overturn social inequities like racism? And how can we be present to people who feel isolated and vengeful? How might we step in and bring life? The second issue is euthanasia. And David talked a bit about this last week. Medical assistance in dying, or MAID, has been available in Canada since 2016. And safeguards around it are continuing to be lessened. They're now reviewing whether people who are suffering solely from mental illness are eligible. So is assisting someone in dying murder? Now, a common position taken in Christian ethics is that allowing death to naturally occur is acceptable. This includes withholding extraordinary measures. But assisting someone to die is not. Now, this is a contested issue even amongst Christians. And recently, a United Church in Winnipeg hosted MAID in their sanctuary. So how should we as followers of Jesus think about MAID? And I don't think we can just lobby the government to stop it. Because over 70% of Canadians are fully engaged and supportive, including even lessening um, some of the safeguards. But I think it's helpful to, to understand why people are choosing to die. 
And in the state of Oregon, they've been offering a form of euthanasia for many years, and they've done studies. Why are people choosing this? And they found out that 90% of people who choose euthanasia do so because of the loss of autonomy. And the second is because it, of the increased limitations from ill health. So life is just not worth living anymore. Um, and unbearable physical pain is not very high up there on the list, which most of us think is the main reason. It's really this loss of autonomy that people are dealing with. And I think, as David said last week, seniors are particularly vulnerable to this right now, as well as people with disabilities and people with mental illness. Recently, there was a 31-year-old disabled woman in Toronto who was approved for MAID because she could not find housing with clean air, and this exacerbated her condition. When it hit the paper, a someone started a GoFundMe campaign. A thousand people contributed money. Someone found her a place with clean air, and she backed off from moving forward on euthanasia. Just people actually caring about her and supporting her made all the difference. And I wonder how many others might not choose death if we, who are fully for life, step in and be present to them and, where possible, mitigate their suffering. Now, the last ethical situation I want to talk about right now is abortion. Partly because it's so heated. Um, and in the U.S., <laughs> Roe versus Wade is really heating up things in the American church. And recently, there was a poll taking, taken asking the question of whether abortion should be mostly legal or mostly illegal. And they found out that 74% of white evangelicals think that it should be mostly illegal. But 72% of black Protestants believed it should be mostly legal. That's a big split, a big difference. And this conflict in North America often centers around bodily autonomy of women. And women rightly have a lot of fear around losing choice over their bodies. So when we look at the Bible, it doesn't specifically mention abortion, and it doesn't include miscarriage in, or during an attack in the murder laws, but scripture clearly indicates that children are a gift from God and that God is already at work in the womb. It also condemns child sacrifice. And I don't think it's surprising that abortion isn't mentioned in the Old Testament as infertility was a huge issue and children were considered an amazing blessing from God. So I think abortion would have been unimaginable. And as the church launched in the first century, it moved from a primary Jewish culture into the Roman culture where abortion and child abandonment were very common. And in the very early writings of the church, they begin to set prohibitions around abortion and infanticide. And Christians were known for going around and finding abandoned babies, rescuing them and bringing them into their homes. Historically, abortion has been allowed by the church only when the mother's life is at risk. And again, that began very early. So a principle to consider as we think about abortion is as Christians, we always ought to err on the side of the weak and the voiceless. And this definitely includes unborn children, but I think it also includes vulnerable mothers. So as followers of Jesus, we affirm the sacredness and value of life, 
but we also affirm the value of choice. It's part of freedom. It's part of what makes us human. And so we have these two things in conflict. I have a number of close friends who opted for abortion in their teens and 20s. Now they're in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they live with deep regret. They, met, they made a choice when they were vulnerable and desperate, and it seemed the best at the time. But I think at that point, they made this decision mostly based on the lack of resources or imagination about how things could be different. And giving women a choice means that there must be good choices besides abortion. And so what if instead of spending all our time or energy judging people or trying to change laws or protesting at clinics, what if we offered women who could not afford to raise a child other options? What if we addressed the issues that caused abortion? So we offered to provide subsidized housing or daycare or relational support. How might that change decisions? And I greatly admire pregnancy option centers in BC because they actually do this. They step, step in relationally, financially, and practically support women with unplanned pregnancies so they can keep their babies. This work is truly in the spirit of do not murder. So in summary, the commandment, you must not murder, is about more than purposely not ending the life of another human being. It's not enough just to stop violence, murder, abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment. We need to pursue redemptive alternatives to these things. That's what the church is called to do. We are required to defend the life of those around us to promote their best interests and to be ready to ward off harm. Now, as I close this morning, I want to remind you again that the sixth commandment was given because God wants us to be free. He wants us to be free from the destructive powers of anger and hatred and violence so that we can flourish. And this commandment comes out of God's love for you, for me, for us, for the world. And so imagine a world where one day it is free from hatred. And one day when Jesus returns, we will no longer need to imagine this because there will be a world free from hatred. But for now, those of us who are followers of Jesus are invited to live this future reality in the present. This is not something we can do on our own, and it may feel overwhelming to you, but Jesus has provided a way for us, and it's through the cross. And so as we come to Jesus, we come with our failures and our inability to love well. We confess that, and we receive forgiveness, and then we invite the Spirit to fill us and empower us so we could love people in a way that we could never do on our own. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's a Sunday where the church remembers the Spirit being given to the church. And love and peace are the fruit of the Spirit. And so as we allow the Spirit to fill us, rather than jealousy and anger and envy, the, the fruit of love and peace will be built in us. And our love muscles will grow, as Johanna says. So let's pray. Let's invite the work of the Spirit in us. Jesus... We thank you for the way that you model to us this new way of being. Love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you. Jesus, we thank you for going all the way to the cross and offering yourself on our behalf. That you forgave us whose sin put you there. 
God, we thank you for the freedom that you give us, for the forgiveness that you give us. We thank you for your spirit um, who lives within us, and we pray that you will fill us with your spirit, that you will develop the fruit of love and peace in us, that you will enable us to love our enemies as ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.